All right. Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus 19. I know it says there Exodus 29, which is where we're going to get to eventually, but you can turn to Exodus 19 so that you're ready. It's going to be a minute before I get there. We'll be looking this morning at the priesthood. We're going to be pondering the priesthood from Exodus 29. Well, you may recall the story uh, came out a couple years ago of Donalyn Andrews. She was a Georgia school teacher who made the headlines in early 2019 for reading the fine print. Mrs. Andrews had purchased travel insurance, a policy known as Tin Leg through a company called Square Mouth. As she was seven pages into the fine print of her contract, she read the following words. If you've read this far, then you are one of the very few Tin Leg customers to review all of their policy documentation. And what followed was an invitation to a secret contest inviting her to claim a $10,000 reward. She reached out to them 23 hours after the event had launched, and she was the only one out of 73 policyholders to do so. The name of the program was Pays to Read. Mrs. Andrews says that she never skips the fine print and she tells students in her life skills class to do the same. In fact, on her exams, she would put a question midway through that said, if you're reading this, skip to the next question. It was pointed out in the article that Square Mouth hopes its campaign will highlight the importance of careful reading. Now, lest you think this little introduction is some guilt trip motivation for us to read our Bibles more, or worse yet, that I'm going to offer you a cash prize for the first person who finds some random prayer of Jabez type secret in the Bible, think again. Who needs a cash prize when we get to drink deeply from the well of God's grace as we dive into the pages of Scripture? In our passage for this morning, while maybe not as high on the list of places in the Bible that don't make us sit on the edge of our seats as the first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles, which are all genealogy, this is still not the first place that we would go to to get inspiration for Christian living. Yet, I want to argue that we must read the fine print. We must see how all of Scripture points us to Jesus, as we've been continually trying to argue, really, since we planted this church. Our first sermon series was Ephesians, and then we went right to Genesis, and we preached all the way through all 50 chapters of Genesis, continually seeing how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. We preached through Ecclesiastes in our first summer here, and then we preached through the Psalms the past two summers before this. Now in our prophet, priest, and king series, as we look at these two Old Testament passages this week and next, and we, we do that for each prophet, priest, and king, we're trying to set the stage for understanding how Jesus executes his threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. So this morning, as we ponder the priesthood, we want to look with a keen eye at how the Old Testament in general, and how this section of Exodus in particular, points us to Jesus, our great high priest. 
a brief recap of the presence of priests in the Old Testament up until this point, as well as a look at the context here in the second half of Exodus will be especially helpful. Some of this information is found in chapter four in Belcher's book, Prophet, Priest, and King, which again, I would remind you, read chapters four and five, and then the part of chapter eight uh, on priests to prepare for the summer conversation. So going all the way back to the beginning, I mentioned this in our, our first sermon, that Adam uh, had the roles of prophet, priest, and king in the garden, especially in the role of priest. He was to guard and to serve. Those words were used of Adam to guard and to serve in the garden. It's actually the same words, those same two words that are used to refer to the work of the Levitical priests as they were to come into the temple and offer sacrifices. So the garden of Eden, in a sense, was God's tabernacle. And Adam was the first priest. And Adam, as we know, he failed to do that work, to carry that work out uh, in the way that God had intended. So Noah and Abraham then following Adam, Noah and Abraham build altars and they make sacrifices to the Lord. So this idea of, of priesthood is, is kind of coming into to being here. We see in Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek, who is called priest of the Most High, a priest of God Most High. His name means king of righteousness. He's also called the king of Salem, so the king of peace. Lots going on there with Melchizedek in this role as priest and as king, and we'll be having a lot of opportunities to look at more at Melchizedek as we get into Hebrews in the fall. Uh, you may also remember that Abraham gave a tenth of everything that he had to Melchizedek as a tithe, as, a, as an offering to the Lord. So this idea of a priest who mediates for God's people, it appears very early on in the record of Scripture. Then we come to Exodus. In Exodus 19 here, after the people have been delivered out of Egypt, they are at the foot of Mount Sinai as Moses goes up to receive the law from the Lord. This is what the Lord tells Moses to say to the people of Israel. Look with me at Exodus 19, verses 4 through 6. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now notice that the very identity of God's people is found in obeying his voice and keeping his covenant as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. If that language sounds familiar, perhaps you know where I'm going with this. This is not just a reality for the Old Testament people of Israel. In other words, as we dig into Exodus 29 this week and Leviticus 16 next week, looking at the Day of Atonement, these instructions to the people of Israel that shaped their lives in holiness and obedience to God and his covenant, they ultimately find their fulfillment in Christ. And we can learn about our identity as believers under the new covenant even through the Old Testament priesthood, even though the Old Testament uh, priesthood and sacrificial system no longer exists. Let me try to argue what I think is at stake here. 
we are culturally in the midst of what seems to be identity crises on multiple levels. Now, I'm not going to attempt to analyze all of these things here and now, but simply to point out the complexities that we face, especially as we seek to navigate these identity crises that people are faced with, whether we experience them directly ourselves or indirectly, and as we understand best how to communicate the truth of the gospel in the midst of massive levels of confusion and upheaval in our culture. Consider the dizzying number of headlines just in the last five years dealing with issues of sexuality and gender, race, political affiliation, and religious affiliation, stats that have many Christians and Christian institutions very concerned. There are massive, powerful, and financially lucrative movements playing the identity politics game and seeking to cause tremendous upheaval to commonly held notions of identity. And we can't have our heads in the sand as we seek to navigate these things. Now, the connection that I want to make between the people of Israel and Exodus in Exodus 19 and our identity as believers under the new covenant is found very convincingly in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you've been around here for very long, you've no doubt heard us talk about this. It's where we get the name for our church. You can turn there if you want to. You don't have to. 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter writes to Christians who are scattered in many different places and who are suffering heavy persecution for their faith in Jesus. He tells them in verses 4 and 5, as you come to him, that is Jesus, as you come to him, a living stone, the living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, notice the connection with Exodus 19, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Notice this language here. This is temple language. We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood so that we might offer acceptable spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. So Jesus transforms the way that we worship and the way that we approach God. And this is good news. Now, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but trying to set the stage for where we're going, this is really going to be the main emphasis of our third and our fourth sermons in this priest section. So kind of prepare yourselves for that. And then Peter continues in verses 9 through 12 of 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Notice that language again, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's exhortation here makes no sense if we don't read the fine print. 
If we don't see how Exodus 19 and following relates to us as the new covenant people of God, we will not live out the full reality of our identity described by Peter here. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his own possession, sojourners and exiles. None of that will make any sense if we're not familiar with what's going on here in Exodus. And we won't be able to effectively proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light because we won't know who we really are. Okay, that may have been the longest introduction to the text that we're looking at that I've ever had, but I believe that these things are foundational to the way that we understand the Bible and the way that we view ourselves as the people of God. Back to Exodus. One more word about the context of Exodus chapter 29, and then we'll read Exodus 29. If you're still there in Exodus 19, Exodus 19 is the midway point of the book of Exodus. There's 40 chapters. Chapters 20 through 40 record the giving of the law, the Ten Commandments, and that's in the first half of chapter 20. And then there are a bunch of other laws about social justice, about festivals, from the second half of chapter 20 through chapter 23. Then chapter 25 to 30 contain detailed instructions about constructing the tabernacle and its furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant, the table for bread, golden lampstand, altars and basins for sacrifices and washings, and then the priest's garments in chapter 28. And then we get to the consecration of the priest, which we're going to look at here in chapter 29. So we have that whole list of here's the instructions for all these things. Then there's a few chapters in between. Then we get to chapter 35, and it repeats all of those earlier chapters that were just described, all those instructions, and it just retells the building and the constructing of all of those things that were just told. It's easy to want to just get through all of these instructions, but let's take some time and let's slow down and let's read the fine print. Exodus chapter 29. Please pay attention to the reading of God's word. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. You shall make them a fine wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the baskets and bring the bull and the two rams. You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments and put on Aaron the coat and the robe of the ephod and the ephod and the breastpiece and gird him with the skillfully woven band of the ephod. And you shall set the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban. You shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. Then you shall bring his sons and put coats on them. And you shall gird Aaron and his sons with sashes and bind caps on them. And the priesthood shall be theirs by a statute forever. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting. Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, 
and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take its blood and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces and wash its entrails and its legs and put them with its pieces and its head and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the other ram, and Aaron and his son shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and take part of its blood, and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron, and on the tips of the right ears of his sons, and on the thumbs of their right hands, and on the great toes of their right feet, and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar, and of the anointing oil, and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments, and on his sons and his sons' garments with them. He and his garments shall be holy, and his sons and sons' garments with him. You shall also take the fat from the ram, and the fat tail, and the fat that covers the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, and the right thigh, for it is a ram of ordination, and one loaf of bread, and one cake of bread made with oil, and one wafer out of the basket of unleavened bread that is before the Lord. You shall put all these on the palms of Aaron and on the palms of his sons, and wave them for a wave offering before the Lord. Then you shall take them from their hands and burn them on the altar on top of the burnt offering, as a pleasing aroma before the Lord. It is a food offering to the Lord. You shall take the you shall take the breast of the ram of Aaron's ordination and wave it for a wave offering before the Lord, and it shall be your portion. And you shall consecrate the breast of the wave offering that is waved and the thigh of the priest's portion that is contributed from the ram of ordination from what was Aaron's and his sons. It shall be for Aaron and his sons a perpetual due from the people of Israel, for it is a contribution." It shall be a contribution from the people of Israel, from their peace offerings, their contribution to the Lord. The holy garments of Aaron shall be for his sons after him. They shall be anointed in them and ordained in them. The son who succeeds him as priest, who comes into the tent of meeting to minister in the holy place, shall wear them seven days. You shall take the ram of ordination and boil its flesh in a holy place. And Aaron and his sons shall eat the flesh of the ram and the bread that is in the basket in the entrance of the tent of meeting. They shall eat those things with which atonement was made at their ordination and consecration, but an outsider shall not eat of them because they are holy. And if any of the flesh for the ordination or of the bread remain until the morning, then you shall burn the remainder with fire. It shall not be eaten because it is holy." Thus you shall do to Aaron and to his sons, according to all that I have commanded you. Through seven days you shall ordain them, and every day you shall offer a bull as a sin offering for atonement. Also you shall purify the altar when you make atonement for it, and shall anoint it to consecrate it. 
Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it. And the altar shall be most holy. Whatever touches the altar shall become holy. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two lambs a year old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a tenth measure of fine flour, mingled with a fourth of a hin of beaten oil, and a fourth of a hin of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight, and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering, as in the morning, for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. And this is his holy word. I want us to look at four different questions this morning as we ponder the priesthood. If you're taking notes, you can jot these down. Four questions about the priesthood. First, who are they? Second, how are they called? Third, what are they called to do? And fourth, why does it matter? Who are they? How are they called? What are they called to do? And why does it matter? First, who are they? Who are priests. Simple definition of a priest is someone who performs religious rites and rituals to God on behalf of others. We might think of Catholic or Orthodox or Anglican priests. Uh, they might be set apart by the way that they dress, uh, might be more hierarchical in terms of their relationship and their duties between God and the people that they represent. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. This idea of being set apart is important. Uh, Belcher, in his book, mentions priests as holy mediators. There's special attention given to the garments of the Old Testament priests, which if you want to go back and read all those details, that's in chapter 28 of Exodus. And significant attention is given in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Leviticus, uh, to the priesthood. The word priest appears 177 times in Leviticus. Again, that's not the book that most of us are super familiar with in the Old Testament. But again, I want to challenge us. Let's read the fine print. That's who the priests are. Very simple kind of overview there. Second, how are they called? How does God call the priests? This is really the bulk of the emphasis here in Exodus 29, how the priests are called. And we see it especially in the first paragraph here in verses 1 through 9. There are three words that are used here throughout the chapter that are related to one another that we need to pay special attention to. 
The first word is consecrate. We see it right there in the first verse. Now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. If you're reading the ESV, you'll notice the heading is consecration of the priests. So to consecrate means, uh, means to be holy or removed from common use. We could also use words like dedicate, set apart, or sanctify. Other places that this word consecrate is used, Genesis 2-3, God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's the same word here as to consecrate, that God made the seventh day holy. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Okay, same word that's used in Genesis 2. So the Sabbath, one day of seven is to be set apart for rest. It's to be set apart to the Lord and to be kept holy. And then throughout this chapter, throughout Exodus 29, we see the priests, we see their garments, we see offerings, we see the altar and the tent of meeting all being sanctified or consecrated or made holy. In fact, the very detailed instructions in these first nine verses include the types of offerings, bowls and rams and breads. It includes washings, it includes clothing, and it includes the anointing oil. All these things that were to be consecrated and set apart for the Lord. Notice also what the second half of verse 9 emphasizes. It says, thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. And it says, it says right before that, that the priesthood shall be theirs as a statute forever. So this perpetual priesthood idea is really important here. And we're especially going to see this as we get into Hebrews. That while the Aaronic priesthood actually comes to an end, there is a priesthood that continues throughout, that continues through Christ. So when we see this idea here of this perpetual priesthood, this priesthood that will not come to an end, uh, we need to, to keep in mind what's going on here as it points forward to Christ. The second word that is used is the word anoint. Verse 7, you shall take the anointing oil and pour it on his head and anoint him. The word anoint simply means to smear with oil. The Hebrew word for anoint is mashach. And it's the verbal form of the word mashiach, where we get the word Messiah, yes, Messiah or anointed one. So the, the word here to anoint with oil is connected to the word for anointed one or Messiah. In the Belcher book, again, he mentions how prophets, priests, and kings in Israel were all anointed and set apart, all anointed with oil and set apart for service to the Lord. The third word that is used, so we have consecrate or anoint, and now we have ordain. We see that in verse 9. Thus you shall ordain Aaron and his sons. This word is used several times, especially in verses 35 to 37, which describes the week-long process of ordination. To ordain means, literally means to fill their hands. To fill the hands. We make a big deal about ordination in the PCA. I had to go through a very extensive process of written exams and exams before committees in a room full of guys, and then an exam before the entire presbytery. 
Uh, James and Chris are in the process of going through their licensure and ordination uh, things right now uh, in order to become teaching elders in our denomination. Jesse and Chris went through extensive training in order to become ruling elders, and we ordained them right about here. I think Jesse was, was kneeling right here, and Chris, Chris was right here in May uh, at our organizational service. We ordained them by laying hands on them and asking them to take ordination vows. Thankfully, we didn't have to stand up here for a week straight and sacrifice bulls every single day, right, and, and splatter their blood all over these guys. But this idea of ordination, the filling of hands, is still instructive for us today. Our elders have their hands full with the responsibility of shepherding and overseeing the flock. It is a unique calling of being consecrated or set apart for the office. And we should acknowledge that, right? We should esteem that office. But don't forget that there is a reality of the priesthood of all believers. A little teaser here for us, which we'll be talking about uh, in three weeks, especially uh, at how the priesthood relates to us. And I'm sure we'll be talking about this at our summer conversation. Okay, so we've seen who the priests are. We've seen how they are called. Now let's answer our third question. What are they called to do? We see this mostly in verses 38 to 41, where the instructions for the daily sacrifices are spelled out. If you look there in verses 38 to 41, it's explaining how the, there's lambs that are to be sacrificed in the morning and in the evening. And again, Leviticus covers these sacrifices in more detail, as well as parts of Numbers. Uh, Numbers chapter 28, verses 1 through 8, explains that there are daily and weekly and monthly and yearly sacrifices. The yearly sacrifice being the Day of Atonement, which we'll talk about next week. This all sounds kind of exhausting, doesn't it? And again, a teaser for our upcoming sermon, uh, the upcoming sermons in this series and the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11, speaks of the Old Testament priesthood and says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Okay, there should be this, when we read this, there should not only be this weight of like, this is just a lot to do, right? Day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. It's not just that, but it's also that these sacrifices actually don't deal with our sins. They don't take away our sins. Now, a word of caution here. We have to be careful. We have to be careful to say that all of this sacrificing and this serving in the tabernacle, we can't say that it was useless, right? Listen very carefully. All of this apparent rigmarole here was for the sole purpose of God's people being set apart and holy so that he might dwell in their midst. Which gets us to our final question. Why does it matter? This is seen in verses 42 to 46. The Lord tells them very specifically what the purpose of the daily sacrifices are. 
42 to 46. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. Again, I'm going to argue that if you just skim through these chapters in Exodus and you don't slow down and read the fine print, that you're going to miss the very heart of God's redemptive purposes. You're going to miss how the Old Testament so beautifully points us to Christ. In fact, I think you're going to miss the gospel. So if you've been spacing out at all up until this point, I don't blame you, right? Because of the nature of, of what we've been looking at. But now is the time to pay attention. God promises here in verses 45 and 46 to dwell among the people of Israel and to be their God. And that they will know that he is the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that he might dwell among them. Then he closes with this definitive claim. I am the Lord their God. This is the goal, people. God dwelling among his people. This is the end goal. This is why he gave them the priests to mediate day in and day out with animal sacrifices. This is why he delivered them out of Egypt. And it's why we're here today, that we might meet with God and that he might dwell among us. But we need to unpack that biblically. What does it mean for God to dwell among his people? The Hebrew word, the verb to dwell is shahan. Got to get that nice guttural sound there, shahan. The noun form is mishkan, which is mostly translated as tabernacle, the place where the people offered the sacrifices, the place where God met with them. 58 times just in Exodus 25 through 40, this word mishkan tabernacle is used to describe, again, that place where God would meet with his people specifically above the Ark of the Covenant at the mercy seat, which Chris will be talking about next week in Leviticus 16. And while we would do well to see the importance of this physical location of the mercy seat in the tabernacle as the very place where God was said to dwell and to meet with his people, that's ultimately an incomplete picture. It's common to hear people say, you can't put God in a box. And while they usually mean something like, you can interpret God however you want to, right? That's what most people mean when they say you can't put God in a box. God essentially says, you can't put me in a box. Or you can't think of me dwelling above a box, right? The Ark of the Covenant. You can't keep me by that box. I'm not going to be constrained to that one place. I think we see good evidence of this in a couple other places in the Old Testament. In Psalm 15, verse 1, David asks the question, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? 
who shall dwell, same word, in your holy, on your holy hill? Answer, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, while David uses words like tent and holy hill here, he's certainly aware that God's presence is not bound to those actual physical locations just above the mercy seat, right? Similarly, in Isaiah chapter 57, Isaiah declares, Isaiah 57, 15, Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits, Shachan, right, to dwell, who inhabits eternity, who dwells in eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell, same word, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. We see from Psalm 15 and Isaiah 57 that there is a qualitative element to God's dwelling place that a certain type of person may dwell with him, or that he may dwell with a certain type of person. Are you and I that type of person? I think we have to answer yes and no, right? No in the sense of on our own, we are not the ones who always walk blamelessly, who do what is right, who speak truth in our heart. We're not contrite and lowly in spirit all the time, right? But yes, if you are in Christ, you are the type of person who dwells with God and and he dwells with you. I think that's very helpful to, to see that, to see what we see in Exodus here, God dwelling in one location, but then we see David and we see Isaiah kind of starting to hint at Well, God's not really bound to this one place, right? He dwells in eternity, and there's a certain type of person that can dwell with him. It's very helpful as we turn to the pages of the New Testament. And right away in John chapter 1, we're given that beautiful description of Jesus, who is the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, the one through whom all things were made, who has life in himself, the life that is the very light of men, and that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome by it. He is the one the whole Old Testament has been pointing to. All of the prophets and the priests and the kings find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. John continues then in verse 14. And the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is really interesting. The word for dwelt here, it's the same word, same, it's taken from the same Hebrew word, shachan, to dwell, that we see in Exodus 29:45. It's actually a loan word from the Hebrew into the Greek. In Hebrew, there's in Hebrew verbs, there's three consonants. Uh, and they're for kind of transliteration purposes, it's S-K-N. Okay, it's the, the letters S-K and N, so shakan. The, the, the Hebrew or the, the Greek word here that's used for dwell is skenao. 
the same three consonants, S-K-N, skenao, so it's actually a loan word from the Hebrew into the Greek that means to dwell. So John uses this word here from that would be very familiar in the Hebrew, and we could actually translate this word, we could say, and we could translate this verse and say, the word became, fr- the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So this very word means. Jesus took on flesh and tabernacled among us. The significance of this is huge. All of that Old Testament expectation of God's dwelling being localized in a portable tent or a building in the temple finds its fulfillment in the Son of God who took on human flesh and now dwells among us. This literally changes everything. It changes everything for us. And there are some serious implications and applications for us today. I want to look at three things specifically that this changes. First, it changes the way that we approach God in worship. No longer can we only meet God in the Jewish tabernacle or temple. God dwells among us through his Son and through his Spirit, whom he has sent to dwell among us. Now we can approach him in worship anywhere, not in a geographically limited way. And as much as I joke around about not having the worship God and the deer stand mentality, uh, the reality is, is that you can, right? Like you can go and sit in your deer stand and meet God one-on-one. And what I always harp on is that doesn't replace corporate worship, right? But we can go and we can go anywhere, any place, and you can worship God, right? You can read your Bible. You can sing praises to God. You can pray. You can worship him anywhere. And it changes corporate worship too. We don't need a mediator to offer sacrifices to God on our behalf. I think this is one of the major flaws of the Roman Catholic approach to worship. The Roman Catholic Mass actually looks more like an Old Testament temple service than it does a New Testament worship service. The priest acts as a mediator between God and the people instead of Christ being the one who is the mediator between God and the people. You don't need me to stand up here and mediate between you and God. Christ does that through his spirit for all of us. We come by faith to the throne of grace and God meets with us as he promises to do and he shines his face upon us. Praise God. Second, it changes discipleship. It changes how we walk with God and how we live out the Christian life in this world. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 14 through 18 and he describes what our relationship with the world should look like now as believers. The heading of this section in the ESV is the temple of the living God. Paul writes, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and then he quotes here from Exodus 29, 45. 
I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And we see that refrain over and over throughout the Old Testament, especially in the book of Ezekiel. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Again, Christ now dwells in us through his spirit. We are the temple of the living God. Just think about that for a moment. The God who created all things, who spoke the world into being, just by who who created the world and he simply spoke it into being, right? That power, God dwells in us. That should blow your mind, right? And our separation from the world that Paul is talking about here is not because we're trying to retreat and protect ourselves. We separate ourselves from what is unclean because the living God dwells in us. He says, what agreement has the temple of God with idols, right? Those things can't mix. You can't put those two things together. So that is why we separate ourselves from the world. Third and finally, and most gloriously, this changes our future hope. Turn with me to the book of Revelation, the very end of your Bibles, second to last chapter, Revelation 21. It's the word of flesh, the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us changes our approach to God in worship, changes our discipleship, and it changes our future hope. This is what we have to look forward to. This is the ultimate fulfillment of the end of Exodus 29, where God promised to dwell among his people and to be their God. But this is so much greater than God dwelling in a tent with a wandering group of Middle Eastern exiles who were just delivered from slavery in Egypt. This is the promise for people from all tribes, languages, peoples, and nations. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is our future hope. This is what we have to look forward to. This is what our worship here and now ultimately points us to, right? This is a dress rehearsal. God dwells among us here and now as he promised way back in Exodus 29 and throughout the entire Old Testament. We see that in Christ coming to dwell among us, the word becoming flesh, 
We see it as we gather together as his people. And we ultimately long for that day when the dwelling place of God is with man and God dwells with us. We are his people. He is our God. He wipes away all our tears. Death is gone. Pain is gone. Crying and mourning are gone. All those things have passed away. Again, we can't skip over the fine print. You can't read Exodus chapter 29, especially those last few verses, and not see that there's a lot more going on than just cutting a bunch of heads off of animals and spraying their blood all over the place, right? It all points us to Christ. We have to see that. We have to appreciate that for what it is. We have to see God's promises to dwell with his people, and we experience that here and now, and we look forward to it for eternity. Brothers and sisters, let us long with anticipation, with great anticipation for that day. Let us pray. God, we thank you for the way you have revealed yourself to us in your word. We thank you that seemingly buried in this long list of of requirements, of, of rituals, uh, there is this glorious promise of you dwelling with your people, of us knowing you, of you being our God and we being your people. And that, that that hope, that theme carries throughout Scripture and we see it as Christ comes and dwells among us. We see it as we're called to be separate from the world. And we see it as we look forward to our future dwelling with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. God, let us not miss those details. Let us not miss that reality in the day-to-day grind of life. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us to fix our eyes on Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, as we long for his coming, as we long for our resurrected bodies and dwelling with you for eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.